Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. There's just so much that school doesn't teach you about how to navigate the so-called real world. And when I had folks repeatedly tell me that, oh my goodness, I wish someone had told me this sooner, I thought I was onto something. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Have you ever felt frustrated at school or work that other people seem to be operating from a rule book or a playbook, well, that you never got? If you've felt that way and you feel that it's hindered your career growth, then today's podcast is for you. I'm excited and honored to welcome Gorik Ng, career advisor at Harvard and faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, who specializes in coaching first-generation low-income students. We're going to discuss his best-selling book, aptly named The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off-Right, an immensely practical guide on how to learn and manage those unspoken rules to better navigate your career and life. Gorick a first-generation college student himself from Canada, is a graduate of Harvard College and the Harvard Business School. Prior to becoming a best-selling author and keynote speaker, he worked in investment banking at Credit Suisse as a management consultant with BCG, the Boston Consulting Group, and on education policy with the Toronto School Board. Gorick, welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you so much for having me. And for that generous intro, Michael, we're on the same team here in terms of wanting to empower folks who are coming in as outsiders and who don't know what they don't know. So thanks for having me here. It's an honor to be with you. Gorik, what's one thing you can share about yourself that we would not find on the internet that you'd like us to know as we start? That this was all a surprise to me if anyone is surprised by how I've been able to turn this into a bit of a career. And I also didn't expect that this would all come full circle to when I was 14 years old, when I helped my single mom get back on her feet when she was laid off. So when I was coming out of school, I looked left, I looked right. I looked at what the cool kids were up to and I applied to the same jobs. I, when I was in the workplace, I also looked left and looked right and looked at what types of graduate programs folks were applying to. And so I kind of just followed the motions in a way. And it wasn't until I did some self-reflection upon what's my place in this world and what can I do to pave a smoother path for those coming after me that I started writing down some of these unspoken rules that were frankly just shower thoughts at the time. These were reflections of mine that were the result of me banging my head against the wall and thinking, why is life so hard? Why is it that it seems like everyone knows something I don't? It was never my goal to write a book, not until I met a certain professor who took me under his wings at Harvard Business School, that this 
went from a series of shower thoughts to sticky notes, sticky notes to Dropbox notes, Dropbox notes to Word documents that then got sent out. And then it all came together in this book that I couldn't have imagined myself doing because I didn't like English class. I didn't like my writing classes, nor was I particularly good at it. So uh, this is all a big surprise to me as well. You bring this incredible passion and energy, Gorick, to your book and when you speak, and you were speaking to lots of companies, lots of university students and people earlier in their careers. And, and your book shares kind of your early background. You alluded to growing up as an immigrant in Canada, in Toronto, helping your mom at 14 write her and send out her resume, being overwhelmed when you've entered new places like Harvard or some of the workplaces, um, elite companies that you worked for. Just for context, is there any particular memory that kind of powers you, that got you through writing and publishing that book? Because it is a long journey. I, I'm very curious, you know, as an author myself as well, what powered you? Yeah, I mean, just to, I want to first touch upon what you said about this being a long journey. It's also a journey that never really ends. When I was going through the whole process, I mean, I thought, okay, once I got the book proposal done, then I'm done. Then it was, okay, once I get a book deal, then I'm done. Then it was about getting it published. And once it's published, then I'm done. Little did I know that the journey has only just begun where it turns out that a book launch really is a launch. You have to keep that rocket ship in orbit. And so a lot of what I'm doing now in terms of getting the message out there through my speaking engagements and content, I didn't realize is really step one and a half of a much longer journey that I thought would have concluded many years ago. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there for anyone who might be thinking of writing a book of their own. In terms of what powered me through this whole process, I'd say it's all of the people that I met through this journey, where, as I said, it, it came together at the earliest stages, really just as a series of rants that I did with friends, and then friends of friends, and then friends of friends of friends. But as I put myself out there more and moreover listened to the stories and struggles of others, and it didn't matter if these were school teachers or Uber drivers or mechanics or lawyers or senior executives or politicians, it, it turns out that so many of us, actually, I'd argue all of us, making this critical transition from school to work struggle in very much the same ways. There's just so much that school doesn't teach you about how to navigate the so-called real world. And when I had folks repeatedly tell me that, oh my goodness, I wish someone had told me this sooner, I thought I was onto something. Yeah, you do an amazing job. I know you interviewed more than 500 people, extracted across industries and, and geographies, company size, and you extracted those lessons, which I thought was brilliant. And if anyone goes to the acknowledgments in the back, I think you <laughs> recognized every single one of them, and yet you were humble enough to say, if there's anyone I left off this list. So I think that's a testament to your conscientiousness and, and what you've produced here. What, Gorick, has been the early reception to the book? Because when it's out there, and you know, one of the things I've, I've learned from talking to authors and experience myself is once you put it out there, sometimes it's received in a different way. Has there been a big surprise for you of those who have read it or that you audiences you've spoken to? A absolutely. I, I'm surprised every day, frankly. I'm learning every day on this front. I, I'd say there are two. One is on a personal level, and then there's one on the book level. So per personally, what's been interesting is just how much folks have wanted to hear my personal story. And it was actually frustrating when I was putting myself out there for the first time, admittedly. I remember sending cold emails to folks to endorse my book. And I remember the first sets of emails that I had sent were ones that said, oh, these are my credentials. This is where I went to school. And it felt almost like a professional cover letter. And in retrospect, I didn't really get many responses from the serious emails. However, the emails that I did get responses to were the ones where I put my own story out there first about my immigrant background, about my single mother, about the struggles that I personally had. And it made the age old mantra of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care to the forefront. I, I, I'd heard that cliche repeated over and over and over again 
but it wasn't real for me until folks repeatedly asked me to tell them about why I wanted to do this in the first place. Um, and this was never meant to be the Gorick show, but um, I, I just have realized how much my personal story makes an impact on how this content is received. And, and I say this because I've, I just had a conversation as recently as last night with a, a friend who's who is trying to figure out his personal brand. And we've probably heard that topic maybe ad nauseum at this point, especially in the age of social media. What is a personal brand? And the framework that we came up with was who you are times who you serve times what you do for them. And I think in retrospect, I was so focused on what I did and maybe who I was doing it for. So I was trying to demystify these unspoken rules for early career professionals, especially those who are coming from humble beginnings and underrepresented backgrounds. But I missed the who I was. And once I embraced who I was and owned it and talked about it, that was when things really started taking off. So for anyone who's listening to this conversation thinking, oh, my experience struggling in A, B, and C ways, that's not relevant in my professional bio. It probably is, actually. <laughs> that's the first piece. Um, the second surprise has been in the form of all the different ways that folks have pulled my content into their teams and organizations. And this was a big debate, actually, between my publisher and me, my editor and me, around what the subtitle of the book would be. And we landed on secrets to starting your career off right because we wanted to be specific, but we wanted to leave it open for folks to interpret. So it wasn't about your first job. It wasn't about coming straight out of school. It was starting your career, broadly speaking, whether it's perhaps as a result of a career switch or you're reentering the workplace after parental leave or you're leaving the military. But what's been surprising is the number of managers and the number of senior leaders that have pulled this content into their organizations and said, wait a second, we shouldn't just be offering this to our early career professionals. We should, we should get our managers to read this because this is really what they're trying to articulate perhaps to their teammates, but they're either too busy or too awkward to do so. And so uh, the, the managerial audience has been, has been surprising and, and fulfilling as well. Really interesting. And I mean, your first comment about the personal and sharing that, I think a lot of people, including myself, who, who come from, you know, racial minority backgrounds, spend much of their life not wanting to, to share their background or their experiences. In fact, to kind of cover a, a topic we're going to come to later. So it's really exciting to see more people sharing that and to hear that insight from you. When we had a previous conversation, you said that you occasionally will poll the audience, which in many cases are university students or those younger in your career, to see what some of their biggest hopes or fears are. And, and the answer surprised me. Could you, could you share that with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do a different set of polls as new inspiration comes to mind. The most recent one I actually did with a group of high school students who are off to university for the first time. In fact, this is a group of first-generation college goers. I asked them, you've worked hard to get to where you are today. Why are you so motivated? And there were about 400 or so responses, and they all revolved around a certain set of themes. There were themes around wanting to prove someone wrong, that I, I had a particularly challenging upbringing and my dad never really believed in me and that really gave me the fire I needed to strive and to keep pushing forward. That was one set of folks. Another came in the form of, I've been so fortunate to have been given so much by my family, by my community, I wanna pay it forward. A third was in the form of, I want to give a life to someone else that I never had myself. So I want to, I, I never had much growing up. I want to provide more for my own kids. So it was just really inspiring to hear this group of young people talk about what motivates them. Because in a prior session, in a totally different context, I was speaking to faculty members at a large university system in the United States. 
And I asked those administrators what their primary struggle was as university faculty and staff. And one of the key themes that emerged uh, beyond mental health, which actually is a recurring theme in what I, what I hear from folks, was motivation. It was how do we get our students motivated? And actually, I hear that also from managers. How do I motivate my team? How do I get them showing up and wanting to do their best work? So here we are, me pulling three different sets of audiences and already seeing a theme around motivation, but hearing it in this raw way from young people really gave me a better sense and a deeper appreciation for why we do what we do every day. And of course, there's many others that I can also share with you around people's career goals, their struggles, et cetera. Yeah, that is inspirational and offers us some hope and optimism when you see that, because I think it's very cynical. I think it happens with every generation to be more cynical of the, the generation that's coming behind you. To shift into your book, Gorek, you do use a very effective framework that you wrap the book in, and I think it's very critical because it just struck me as a very memorable, simple way to be thinking about the domains that these unspoken rules operate. Could you share that 3C framework with us here? Absolutely. Um, when I take a step back from all of my anecdotes and research, and I think about the invisible rubric that we're evaluated against, whether it's in an interview, in a resume, in a client call, I've actually been told that this is just as relevant for dating. That's out of that's not my lane, but perhaps it's, <laughs> there's a broader applicability to this framework, is that it's called the three C's, and it stands for competence, commitment, and compatibility. And the idea is the minute you show up is the instant that folks start asking themselves three questions. In a professional context, competence is the question of, can you do this job well? Can I trust that if I give you a task that you'll do it correctly and do it on time? The second C is commitment. And it's the question of, are you excited to be here and to grow here? It's a question of, can we trust that if we invest in you, that you'll stick with us, that you'll go above and beyond with us? And then the final C is the C of compatibility. And that's the question of, do we get along? Are you someone that I'd want to sit beside and want to see grow and want to help on a daily basis? So are you competent, are you committed, and are you compatible, the three Cs? Your job, and frankly, all of our jobs, and this includes the CEO of the organization, it's true for the President of the United States, it's to convince the folks around us that yes, in fact, we are competent, committed, and compatible in everything that we do. And if you can demonstrate those three Cs, you will build trust, you will unlock opportunity, and you'll lay a solid foundation for yourself for hopefully a successful and fulfilling career. It's just that no one really tells you that they're evaluating you against those three C's. So it is incumbent upon yourself to look left, look right, and to ask yourself, hey, compared to my colleagues, how competent, committed, and compatible am I? Am I overshooting the mark to the point where I come across as a know-it-all and I'm looking to take someone else's job and I'm being a threat to someone? Or am I maybe undershooting the mark and coming across as apathetic or disengaged? You want to stay in that safe zone, that green zone of your three C's. Yeah, this idea of kind of calibrating yourself, the Goldilocks of not being at either of those extremes. And you offer a Venn diagram on that. And you also offer many examples, checklists, questions, tip sheets, down to practical exercises and scripts, scripts which I find very helpful even with executives that I work with. So that's really useful in the book. Big picture, Gorik, I want to pull back for a second and ask you about a question that frankly also kind of gets leveled against my book, but that you, you seek to level the playing field. This, was, this is very clear by giving first-generation students the rules they never got and tools to proactively manage that. So it's very much of you know, how to be proactive, how to learn these things, and take care of yourself. How does this mesh with institutional bias, discrimination that one can't control? Uh, I mean... Is there also kind of a smart way that you'd advise people, hey, you're banging your head in the place that you're at for something that's never going to happen because there is systematic bias there or your chances of succeeding in that environment are not going to be there? How do you, how do you reconcile? Yeah, well, I, I'd say that 
self-help is necessary but not sufficient. We also need collective help. So you could be the highest performer with the highest amount of potential in your organization, but if your manager sees you as a threat and if it's their performance evaluation of you that matters, you're not going to be set up for success. If there is favoritism at the senior levels of pick your six closest friends for the next vacant position, that's probably not going to be a place where you're going to have a fair shot. There's also been ample research that has shown that women especially face systemic biases. In fact, there was a, a report written by a nonprofit called Catalyst that I'll probably um, butcher the name here, but the title of it was something along the lines of, does doing all the right things really get women ahead? Um, and the answer, the short answer is no, that a lot of these self-help strategies and tactics and maneuvers may get you to a certain point, but what women really need in the workplace are sponsors, folks banging on the table for you for that certain stretch assignment, for that certain promotion, for that certain opportunity. Uh, so I, I would say that my book is one piece of a much longer relay race. And this is increasingly becoming, I think, to, to a really positive extent, a conversation that I'm having increasingly with companies, which is, yeah, sure, you should speak to our employees because they should know what they don't know. But you should also turn around and speak to our leaders because they're the ones who are going to be determining the culture of this organization and they should be mindful of all the ways in which this may not be a level playing field. And that's where also uh, your work comes in, I'm sure. Yeah, and to, and to this point, there is going to be a majority culture and that is going to dominate. The research shows we tend to promote people that are similar or like us uh, for better or for worse. And so there is always adapting to whatever the kind of the majority environment is or to understand some of those rules. And, and here's where we get into that debate. Where do you fall on this question of how much do you show your true self? How much do you adapt or be a chameleon in the environment that you're in? Well, I think that there's learning to be had on both sides. In fact, if I can answer this through one of my polls, um, this is a regular conversation that I have with organizations. And one of the ways in which we've elevated this conversation is at the end of one of my fireside chats at a global management consulting firm, we ended up asking the question of, hey, we've talked a lot about these unspoken rules as it relates to corporate America. But we're speaking to a global team here. We've got folks in Tokyo. We've got folks in the Philippines. We've got folks in Sub-Saharan Africa. We've got folks in the Middle East. And the question that they often ask is, hey, why is it that we're catering to the American way of doing things? Does America not have something to learn from the rest of the world? And the poll question that we actually pose, which I'd encourage actually leaders to ask their teams is, hey, what is something that corporate America can learn from the rest of the world? What practice have you observed in how teams work and how people collaborate elsewhere that we might want to adopt here? And in that session, we raised actually dozens of different ideas that helped senior leaders appreciate that, oh, wow, the ways in which we've done things is just one of many ways. And we assume that what we've been exposed to is the way of doing things when there's so many other ways of doing things. But I, I think that it's, it's a long journey because what we're trying to do is to close two gaps. One is a knowing gap, and then the second is the doing gap. And the first step to change minds and to influence hearts is to close that knowing gap of helping folks even appreciate that there may be an alternate way, then, of course, the, the hard work as well is to turn that into action. Having had a global career and actually seeing quite a bit of evidence, too, that those who kind of have moved around the world are very effective leaders because of the different practices they, they bring in. Michael, I, I don't know if you have any stories of your own because a debate, a conversation that I often find myself having is what is 
a good practice or a best practice around how we work together versus what is just a matter of one's personal values or preferences. And I'm curious, I mean, you've seen the world, Michael, you've worked with executives around the world. I'm curious what you've seen as maybe a best practice versus just a personal preference. That's a tough one. The personal preference often, you know, is ones that are related to culture. For example, being here in Spain and working in parts of Asia where it's very relationship and we want to build that relationship first, whereas it can be more direct in places. Best practices, and I think this is where things are universal, is how good decisions get made. Makes sense. Yeah, certainly parallels my observations. Gorek, I'm going to hit you with a couple harder questions here that go right to summarizing some of the, the critical points. Is there a, a top tip for those who are entering or starting in the workforce that they really need to early on come to grips with to drive their success? What comes to mind first is think of your manager not as your manager, but as your overseer. They're not actually managing you. It's your job to manage your manager, not the other way around. And that's in complete contrast to what we've been taught in school, which is that the professor knows what the answer is. There's a right answer to everything. All you have to do is show up to class, follow the instructions written in your syllabus, and you'll get an A. You can be passive. But building a successful career and establishing trust and credibility requires that you not be reactive but proactive. So what does that look like? It means if your manager doesn't even know that you exist, which does happen in some settings, introduce yourself and say, hi, my name is so-and-so, new member of your team, wanted to introduce myself. Number two is if your manager doesn't proactively offer a time to meet, offer a time to meet. So to say, I'd love for us to find some time over the coming days to sit down. I'd love to learn about your priorities over the next couple of weeks and months and where I can be helpful. Here's my availability. Let me know when works best for you. If your manager doesn't give you any work, ask how you can be helpful. In fact, that's the script. It's how can I be helpful? Or is there anything I can do to be helpful? Or I noticed this. I, I noticed so-and-so mentioned this in this prior conversation. Would it be helpful if I took this on? If your manager doesn't give you a deadline, ask for a deadline. And in fact, that's one of the other unspoken rules in the workplace, which is that there's always a deadline and there's always actually an invisible deadline, a secondary deadline to the first one, which is that if your manager says, hey, can you look into this? Is it due next Friday because there's a client meeting next Friday? And if so, do you need to check in with them on Wednesday because they need to send the presentation out on Thursday? And is the case that you have to talk to colleague A, B, and C before you talk to your manager, in which case the deadline isn't next Wednesday, but it's actually this afternoon because so-and-so is going to be out and so-and-so is going to be on the road. You have to work backwards from that end goal and manage your manager through that entire process because unlike in school where you can kind of count on your professor to have thought about everything on your behalf, you have to be the one to take control. And the sooner you get into the mindset and to have the confidence to manage your manager, the sooner you'll be able to build trust, number one, but the sooner you'll be able to actually take control of your own career because no one is going to be as invested in it as you will be. So if no one's offering you an opportunity, jump for that opportunity. If no one offers you an opportunity to join this certain meeting, invite yourself and ask, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. I'd love to be a part of this conversation. Can I be there? Yeah. Be proactive. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. These tips are so valuable. I am very sensitive to stereotypes, but I want to ask you and, and go right at this because this part of, of managing your boss can be very difficult for, for those of us, or I would, I would argue there's a lot of Asian cultures, there's a lot of deference to authority. And, you know, you, you don't speak up unless you know the answer. You are wary of critiquing, managing the boss, or, you know, they make the decisions. And I, does that show up more with particular groups? Yeah, it certainly does. And it's, 
it's more commonplace in corporate America and in the American way of doing things that you have a point of view that you're expected to be seen and heard and known, even if you don't know very much. And uh, that's very yeah. much at odds <laughs> with how the rest of the world or, or some parts of the world do things. So yeah, there there is a bit of a, a mindset shift that's required to, to use your language of you know code switching. Um, so the first step really is to just recognize that actually you're in a different game with a different set of rules and others are playing it by how the rules are written or unwritten. And you need to be keeping up with that as well, um, as unfair as they may be, or as maybe unproductive sometimes as they may be. Um, the second is around language. And you mentioned needing to have a Nobel Prize winning answer before you raise your hand, or even just raising your hand versus just speaking up. What I found helpful is to remind myself that when someone asks for my point of view, or when someone is seeking my point of view without necessarily asking it, but expecting me to speak up, they're not looking for the best answer because the reality in business is that we're always weighing pros and cons. There's not necessarily a right answer. There's just maybe a better alternative or a more compelling argument. When in doubt, just give a satisfying answer. Now, what does satisfying mean? Well, what is a satisfying answer? A satisfying answer comes in three flavors, broadly speaking. You're giving a hypothesis, you're giving a partial answer, or you're giving the promise of a more complete answer later. Let me give you an example. So Michael, if you were to come up to me and ask, hey, Gorik, where is this piece of information? Now I can give you an unsatisfying answer, which is, well, I don't know, which doesn't leave you with very much. It doesn't demonstrate that I'm competent enough to think and that I'm committed enough to help and that I'm compatible enough to want to see us as a team that's successful together. But if I gave you a hypothesis, I can say, Michael, I, I'm not quite sure, but I have a feeling that so-and-so might know, or it might be in this document. A partial answer might be, you know, I recall it being in this Dropbox. I can take a look and get back to you. And actually that leads into the third one, which is the promise of a more complete answer later, which is I'm not sure, but let me double check and let me get back to you in maybe an hour or so, or by the end of today, how does that sound? If we think about this through the lens of the three C's, again, you're competent enough to give it your best shot. You're committed enough to want to help even in the slightest way possible. And you're compatible enough to really see yourself as part of the team and to be a shared stakeholder in this decision versus this being your problem. And I don't know, you, you go deal with it. Brilliantly practical, yes, because when you get asked that question and you look like deer in the headlights and you don't know what to say, it certainly unwittingly undercuts you. And speaking of that, is there a, a number one, I call it the CLM, the career limiting move, that you may see first gens unwittingly obviously make that they should avoid? I'd say this, for some first gens might come across as common sense, but I think it's worth calling out. It's self-rejection. It's when someone offers you an opportunity, an interview, an invitation to a meeting, an opportunity to speak, a stretch assignment, and you say, mm, you know, I, I don't think, I'll pass for now. I, I don't know if I'm quite ready for it yet. And I've heard so many, especially young people who have gotten great interviews at blue chip companies who don't take the interview. And in doing so, reject themselves from the job before they even have a chance for others to give their assessment. And then lo and behold, someone else who's half as competent but doubly as confident says yes. Perhaps doesn't do as good of a job, but because they showed up, they're the ones with the opportunity. I'd say that's one piece. The other side of that same coin in terms of self-rejection is to not invite oneself. And I, I remember speaking to um, an entry-level professional who couldn't help but notice that a certain colleague of hers was always missing at a certain time of day, and let's say like a Thursday afternoon. And there's always a block on that person's calendar. And she was wondering, what the heck is going on? And she was always looking over to this colleague and 
they were always away from their desk, but they were always coming back somehow on a regular basis with a promotion. They, they're getting pulled into this overseas assignment and that promotion and getting this title change. And she's wondering, what the heck is going on? And then actually it was years into her career that her manager said, hey, you know, maybe you should join me at one of these meetings, these, these stand-ups that are cross-functional. And she thought, okay, well, she didn't self-reject herself, which would have been a big mistake at the time, but she, she showed up. And lo and behold, it turns out that that colleague had been going to these meetings for over a year. So she didn't know what she didn't know, so you can't blame her for that. But, and she was on the verge of maybe right. self-rejecting herself. So luckily that didn't happen, but she also didn't invite herself, which was what this colleague um, did, even just as a fly on the wall to start. But then you go naturally from being a fly yeah. on the wall to being a contributing entity, and that's where you want to be. Oftentimes, particularly when you're younger in the career, let's be honest, there is anxiety. I'm not qualified to be there. Some may call this imposter syndrome or simply I don't have the chops. I don't know the stuff I've got to prepare before I'm there. Is, is there a, a practical way to still <laughs> turn that anxiety into confidence that, that you might share? Yes, and your millennial listeners might remember this. Uh, I tried this on a Gen Z audience. It did not lend well, but it was a Simpsons reference, the cartoon. Marge Simpson, the, the mother in the household, wanted to make some extra money and so decided to teach piano. Lisa Simpson, the daughter, says, Mom, why are you teaching piano? You don't even know how to play the piano. And then the mother says, well, I don't have to know how to play the piano. I just need to be one lesson ahead of whoever I'm teaching. And it, it was a mind-blowing um, <laughs> experience for me because it really comes back to this idea of having a mind-blowingly brilliant idea, which is, which can just, it comes back to this idea of needing to have the perfect answer or the Nobel Prize winning solution. And if we apply this to expertise, I think it's important for folks to realize that expertise is relative. That you don't have to be the world's foremost expert on this industry to have a point of view. You just have to know a little bit more than the next person. And actually, expertise is acquired in the smallest of ways in your career, where were you the one to put together that analysis? If so, you might know more about this topic than the more senior folks because you've been doing the research. Or were you in that client call that someone else wasn't a part of, in which case you were purview to a conversation that others didn't have access to? Or did you have a personal experience uh, on a certain topic or a certain issue that no one else can say that they ha they've had, or at least maybe no one else can say that they've had the experience that you've had? All of those can be pulled in to create expertise. And where you have even just a little bit more knowledge than someone else, or even just knowledge in general, you have permission from the universe to speak up. Um, so for those of you who may be thinking to yourselves, you know, this is probably a stupid comment. Think back to the last conversation. Maybe think back to the last three conversations that you've had. Did someone else show up with half as baked an idea and end up getting all the credit? Well, it probably happened if it did because you were so busy fighting this battle in your own head of whether this was a comment worth making that someone else just shared it. And lo and behold, they were seen, they were heard, they were seen as a subject matter expert. Yeah, I have executives that I coach do this exercise a lot to go look at when they say, I've got to show up and be an expert on everything to go pay attention to meetings of what other people are saying. And they come back and they say, you know, half of these were not so great ideas. And another point here that I think is very important, and the, the dimension we haven't talked about is that oftentimes your good work, when you put it out there, you know, you want to show competence, you want to show the commitment, et cetera, on the three C's, but you can get taken advantage of. Not everyone has the, you know, the truest intentions. And th there's a lot of, you know, anecdotal evidence and certainly some, you know, research here that shows people will steal your work. People will take credit behind closed doors. And how do you protect yourself against that? Be the presenter. 
be in the room when that piece of work is being shared. In fact, I, I, I heard this piece of advice from someone who works at uh, a blue chip technology company who has since become the essentially the equivalent of the head of corporate development. And I asked this individual, look, I mean, if I look at your career in this organization, forgive me for saying this, I mean, it, it looked like a pretty average start. I mean, there were a thousand other people probably who had the same title as you, and yet there's only one of you in this organization. Now, what did you do that others didn't do? And at the start of the conversation, we talked a lot about luck and how this person got lucky, but uh, I wasn't quite convinced. I mean, yeah, luck plays a bit of a role in all of our lives. Uh, but he said he signed up strategically for work that mattered to those who matter, which is a quote from chapter uh, from the, one of the later chapters in my book. So he he found a project that had that had eyeballs from the senior the, the most senior ranks. And he did that work, but he didn't just hand it off. He invited himself and he was like, oh, you know, I I think there might be some details in here that, you know, I, I might be able to explain just in case. Could I, would it be helpful for me to be a part of the conversation? Or even, even earlier than that, being the person to send that piece of analysis out, being the person in the from line in an email, put his name out there. Um, and so where often credit gets taken, and again, this is not a, a one-size-fits-all. I mean, politics can play a role. It could be the case that your manager says no to your request to be in the room to send the analysis out and all of those things. That speaks to the collective help that we talked about. Um, but to the extent that you can be associated with that work, you'll hopefully um, get the credit that you deserve. And by the way, this is where we can really draw analogies across different organizations because one of the populations that I serve are transitioning PhDs who are no longer interested in an academic career but are instead looking to switch to industry. And one of the things that I've learned from the world of academia is that being first author, I mean, there's a whole battle that goes behind the scenes on who gets to be first author, second author, third author, 16th author. And it's all because in academia, if you get published and you're first author, you get, you get extra brownie points. Turns out there's something about that that's true for corporate America as well. As, as we're coming to the end here, Gorek, I, I have to ask, you wrote that your book, When the Pandemic Was Taking Off, we know that building relationships a lot, you know, and being around the water cooler makes you attend to office politics, side conversations, et cetera. When we went remote, or now we're in the hybrid world, did that battle test or make you shift any of the advice that you provided? So yes and no. So yes, in the sense that, I mean, <laughs> it, it, was, it was brutal uh, at the early stages of the pandemic because I just submitted my manuscript and then the pandemic happened. And then I started asking myself, well, what could this new world of work look like? At the early stages of the pandemic, we weren't making handshakes anymore. So that was my first target in my manuscript. I control F'd and I looked for handshake and I started tweaking a couple of sentences around it. And then it felt like this sweater that just unraveled as I pulled from a single thread. The whole thing started unraveling where I really had to rewrite, frankly, the entire manuscript anticipating what a remote and hybrid workplace would look like. So uh, I'd like to think that my book was actually one of the earliest ones to market that spoke to what it takes to succeed, not just in person, not just remotely, but also in a hybrid environment. And one of the things that stands out quite a bit, this is not my piece of research, but it's been long studied, is the proximity bias. And this is a bias where we tend to associate ourselves with and like things that we're more familiar with. And those things could also be people. So if your manager is thinking about who to promote, well, they're probably thinking about who's most top of mind or who's shown up to that town hall recently or who they can see most readily walking up and down the hall and saying hello to them in the morning. So one of these unspoken rules is to be visible but it's especially true if you're working in this remote and hybrid environment where you have to make a strategic calculation around, am I going to join just on the telephone where folks can only hear my voice? 
should I be on camera as well? And the unspoken here rule here is yes, you should be on camera, especially if everyone else is, despite Zoom fatigue, which is totally real. And or should you actually be in the room? And actually, I, I heard this from a, a global Fortune 500 that I worked with, where folks noticed a pattern among folks who got promoted. I mean, this is a global organization. They have offices in probably every country around the world. And what they noticed was if you want to rise to the senior ranks, you need to get to the center of gravity, and that's headquarters. So that means making, asking yourself the question of, is this a ladder that I want to climb? And if so, at what point does it make sense for me to uproot myself, uproot potentially my family to move to this far off place because I get to be around the most senior folks? There's a whole conversation we can have there, but uh, visibility has really taken on a new meaning in this new world. Yeah, I think that is so critical. It's a huge point that I bring up in, in my book, particularly those who work globally to get back to headquarters, now in the remote world, the proximity bias you speak of, also the mere exposure effect if people are top of mind or seeing your name a lot, and some very savvy and strategic things you can do. Is there any question or topic that you're surprised I didn't ask or we should have addressed and you'd like to address here at the end? You know, I, I've been hoping to actually ask you a question, um, <laughs> which actually as it relates to the three C's, one of the things, and I think what really got our conversation to take off the first time, even long before this, this conversation, is how many parallels there are between my world and, and yours. And one of the things that I often hear about and find myself repeating is when it comes to those three C's, and I hear this a lot at law firms, that if you just do your job and do it well, you could probably get pretty far, uh, especially as a, as a junior level associate. Um, just, just have detail orientation, just do it on time and you'll be a star. But as you get to your, the mid-level of your career and to the more senior levels, the more it's not necessarily about doing the work, it's more about selling the work, selling your work, selling your ideas, selling your team, selling yourself. And, and I'm curious, the topic that I'd love to pick your brain on is, as you think about your book as, as it relates to mine, are the unspoken rules as transferable or is there a topic or an unspoken rule or a certain way of doing things that folks have to relearn, unlearn and relearn once again, once they get to a certain level? I think it's a great question. This 3C framework is transferable. When I work with senior executives, some of them have gotten in such ingrained habits, keeping their head down, not getting sponsors, not being visible, not defending themselves, that it's almost harder when they're more senior, kind of the arteries have hardened, to shift or change some of that behavior. So I think your book does a tremendous amount of work helping people early on start to develop these habits and be aware of these rules. As you move up, the air gets thinner. It gets more competitive. And so you need to be much sharper on your game. The evidence would unfortunately suggest that a lot of people who are extremely savvy and not always ethical, taking credit, showing up overconfident, they are rewarded for that. You do need to, midpoint of your career, think about, do you want to be at that top of the organization more than ever, or, or what you want your place to be? And is this the kind of place where I want to expend that effort because it can get very challenging and you will have trade-offs that you have to face. So I would say transferable, even more heightened and important as you rise up in the ranks. And this is the very uncomfortable part. People who excel in school, who have always done well, are very good at delivering the work. You need to actually let go of some of that stuff because you simply cannot do it and you are influencing other people. And, and that's a choice uh, that many of the executives I work with make. If they like to be hands-on and do it, well, you know, going up may not be the place for you because you're very rarely going to do that work or be rewarded for it. I love that. Some, some thoughts, and I would love to have a further conversation. I think our books very much uh, complement each other and are looking to serve the same purpose, help good people get ahead and make organizations better places. We're definitely running... Two legs of the same relay race here, Michael. Yeah. Gork, I saw that you've got online courses coming up, in fact, a waiting list. So I'm really excited to see the things that you're expanding into. 
How do people best reach you? Where's the best place to go? Appreciate that. The best place to go is my website, which is goric.com. That's G-O-R-I-C-K dot C-O-M. So it's like go Rick. On that website, you'll see a bunch of old and exciting new projects that are coming to the forefront. So of course, you can learn about my book, learn about my speaking engagements. As you said, there's an online course that I have. We're turning the corner on the launch as, as we speak. 30 modules, three and a half hours of content helping you navigate every how-to that you know what you don't know or that you don't know what you don't know. Also, I'd invite everyone to join my newsletter where I'll be sharing topical ideas on how to best navigate your career given this, this uncertain and forever changing time. So I uh, invite you to connect with me on my website. You'll also find my social media handles there. Goriking, author of the best-selling book, The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right, career advisor at Harvard, faculty at the University of California, Berkeley. Very honored that you made the time and would join me here on 97% Effective. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. And this was 100% a ton of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.